When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Stories of Briscoe and Bradshaw. I would be Bradshaw. That would be the WWE Hall of Famer, Oklahoma's favorite son, Mr. Gerald Briscoe. And we have got an incredible treat. I've been looking forward to this for a, ever since Mr. Briscoe told me we're getting one of the greatest band lead singers, writers of all time. 30 million plus albums. His album, Siamese Dreams, recorded in the 90s, best selling double album of the 90s. Also was called a perfect body of work. Grammy Award winner, MTV Award winner, American Music Award winner. He's won everything. And one thing that we love is he now owns one of the most iconic, legendary wrestling promotions of all time and the oldest, the NWA. He is Mr. Billy Corgan. Billy, welcome to the show. Thank you. I, I, I think Mr. Briscoe knows a little thing about the NWA, so I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be with both of you. Well, thank you, Billy. You know, NWA, yeah, man, it rings so close to my heart, you know, and it, it struggled around. Uh, so for so many years, after, you know, after after the peak years, you know, after 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 real. And then, they, they, you know, they had some champions that I wasn't really pleased with the direction of, of the company going. But, but man, and all of a sudden, when you took it over, I, I got a smile on my face because I, I know what type of promoter you are from your music. So I was really pleased. And I knew that NWA would, would come back to, to what, what everybody wants it to be. And, and that's just a great organization with great talent and great matches and add to that great history there. But speaking of history, you know, I, we're doing a little research on you, of course, coming into this thing. I said we're where your 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 roots of wrestling went back to, I believe it was Chicago with your grandmother introduced you to the sport of professional wrestler and and Dick the Bruiser who was a who was a dear friend of mine and and, and acquaintance of John Bruiser's really one that piqued your interest is that is that true Tell us about that those those childhood memories with Dick the Bruiser and your grandmother sure well um, when I was four years old my mother had some health issues uh, my father had was out of the country. He was a musician. They'd split up, you know, typical American stuff. But um, so I ended up living with my great grandmother who was in her eighties and from Belgium, barely spoke English. And so there I am on a Saturday morning watching Bruiser yell at me through the television, you know? <laughs> and, you know, we all have those memories where it's like it, it, you, you become captivated, but you don't understand what you're watching. You know, you don't know, you don't know anything about the business. You just know this, something is different is happening. And of course, Bruiser was one of the great legends of all time. And, you know, I'm just a kid. I don't know I'm watching future Hall of Famers. You know what I mean? I just, I, I'm just watching whatever's on television. And I, I just fell in love with professional wrestling. And, you know, the great thing about owning the NWA is, you know, you get to create your own version of the NWA. And part of what I realized over owning the company for five years is the toughness that I've tried to bring back to the NWA 
the type of um, professional athlete I want to bring back to the NWA is very much rooted in those early memories, which is basically AWA style. But all that, of course, grew out of the NWA. And um, of course, you know, what you guys were doing in Florida and all that, you know, I mean, it's all kind of added up over time where I sort of realized that a lot of people sometimes sort of make it seem like the business that you created was of the past. I don't see it that way. I think that is the business. And I will go to my grave fighting to say that this is the core of the professional wrestling business. So uh, just talking to you today even just kind of fills that loop in for me because I don't think it gets any better than Bruiser screaming at me through a TV in 1971. Okay. I, and I'm not, that's not sentimental. That to me, that is the business. He, he is the business. Well, yeah. what, what do you think, you know, when, when cable came along, all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the small areas are, are getting out and all of the cables in here and you're getting this strange uh, product from uh, Georgia, you know, coming on your screen, which is, which is the basics of what you really grew to love, uh, and and uh, the the NWA Georgia Championship Wrestling was that was that was that music to your ears, so to say. Well, it was so different from what I was used to because because of the way Chicago worked, you had Bruiser coming in from Indiana and the Gagne's coming down from Minnesota and then putting on these supercards in Chicago. I didn't know that's what was happening. All I know is Chicago had a certain feeling to it. It was very very rough and rugged. And then, of course, when Georgia started coming in, Dusty, uh, Blair, that crowd, it was it had a little bit more swagger and swing to it. But I liked it in a different way. It felt more modern of the times. And I guess it was. I mean, I remember watching Flair and thinking I wanted to kill him. I didn't know he was Ric <laughs> Flair, the future, you know, Hall of Famer. I just knew that every time he appeared on the television, I wanted to kill him. You know what I mean? So. But it was so different than the, than that AWA style. Yeah, and you could it's funny because you can always tell in the old territories by the wrestlers. You know, you, you look in the old AWA, they were all, all old shooter guys, all old wrestlers wrestling down in Florida. Tennessee, you know, had a lot of ha-ha, but they drew a lot of money. Uh, Texas was all blood and guts, you know, hardcore. Puerto Rico was really blood and guts. Japan was the old style, just mat wrestling. So was Europe. And it's interesting to me that you chose to bring back that one style that, you know, always a lot of, all of them drew money, but the one style that was the most popular for wrestling for almost the entire first part of the century was the, was the NWA. And that's, so that was a concerted effort on your part to bring back that athleticism, that shooter style of athlete, right? I really think that, um, I mean, one riff that I have is, I would argue that the most popular wrestling promotion in the world is UFC. You know, they adapted, as you're well aware of, they adapted the code swagger and promo style yeah. of, you know, uh, 90s WWE F. And Even the backstage they, entrance. They, 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 they did it all, which is smart by Dana. So they glommed that all onto their product, drew big, big money, and really kind of changed everything including the professional wrestling business so my point is is when i watch ufc i basically see that old nwa style and and in my mind what draws money you take two old big hosses and you put them nose to nose if you don't want to see that fight then you don't like a fight that's you know what i mean um you know uh your reputation john was was a t one of the toughest guys in the business so when they when you were in the ring I wanted to see what was going to happen because that's what I pay to see, right? So if you don't believe in that, 
If you don't believe in that on the business side, I don't I don't know what business you believe in. Why do the heavyweights traditionally always draw the biggest money? It only really gets subverted when you have a, a, a phenom of a talent like a Shawn Michaels or a Conor McGregor, <coughs> who's such a great promo and such a great fighter you want to watch, or a, a Floyd May Mayweather, where you want to watch basically middleweights. But at the end of the day, eight times out of 10, it's the heavyweights that draw the biggest money. And so I always say, I, if, I, if I go to the circus, I want to see the elephants. And when they got rid of the elephants, they got rid of the circus. So I, I think that all goes together in my mind. Yeah, and you always have the Hagler and Hearns. You always have a great draw, you know, among the middleweights of two guys who are just great fighters. But I agree with you. It's always the heavyweights. You know, they're always overshadowed by the Ali's and the Foremans and the Frazier's and the and the Holmes and the Klitschko's and the Tyson's and the great heavyweights uh, that that uh, end up coming along. I was at uh, WWE a couple weeks ago, and when Brock Lesnar and Bobby Lashley first started getting head to head. The entire arena changed. And when I broke in the business, Skandar Akbar used to tell me how Luthes, when he walked out, everything changed because they knew this was the main event. I know Jerry knows Lou or knew Lou and knew that was the case, but there's still, you got to have that presence among, and that comes from these guys that just are able to carry themselves. Yeah. I, I worked with Bobby Lashley at TNA for years. And no matter how many times Bobby walked past me, I would always follow Bobby. It's <laughs> yeah. just, I mean, you look at Bobby and you're like, what is that? Who look, yeah. looks yeah. like yeah. that? You know what I mean? How could you not look at Bobby? He's just a phenom, right? So you book that on paper, right? Lesnar versus Bobby Lashley. If you don't want to see that, what what do you want to see? That's my brain. Yeah, right. you know, talking about looking, looking at guys, you know, the old story that that I was present at when I first brought Brock in to meet Vince. At, we were in Minnesota, and uh, I invited the wrestling coach down and uh, Brock and Shelton Benjamin down to, to meet and kind of see our pay-per-view system, how we go through doing our TVs. Vince never pays attention to any outsider outside the business. He just – whether you're all pro football player or what, you know, you're just another guy. Vince has seen it all. So we're sitting there, we're leaning on, leaning on the, the backstage crate, you know, that holds all the equipment around, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And, and Brock, Brock had dressed to the T. He had one of those tight knit shirts on, you know, and mostly 22 years old at the time, you know, jacked out like this. And Vince always loved the jack guy. So, he was walking by going to the gorilla position, getting ready to go go monitor some matches or some rehearsals. All of a sudden I see him. I see him walk out of his office. And I said, Well, I wanna I wanna get him, but I wanna see him do it naturally, you know. And uh, so I'm waiting, I'm waiting, you know. If he would have missed it, I would have grabbed him. But anyway, he didn't miss him. As soon as he come out, I saw Vincent I he's always mapping the territory out to his quicker route to 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 escape, you know, and so He's walking by, and all of a sudden, he looks over there, and I see the corner of his eye. I look over there, all of a sudden, that, that eyes and that face just get big. He stops immediately in his tracks, turns, and comes over to Brock, and well, I want to meet you. But once again, it just goes that people want to see that damn size and everything. Yeah. That's it. That's it. What was it when when you were growing up uh, in Chicago, right? And and you were. Uh... You had your your dad was a singer with with the creative occupation. I understand from watching a lot of your uh, interviews. Uh, yes, sir. What what ended up getting you into singing? What made you want to be a singer? Obviously, you were good at it, but what made you start thinking I can do this for a living? 
Well, let me flip the script on you for a second. My father was a great professional musician. He never achieved any degree of success, but he was good locally. But very good singer, very good guitar player. When he heard me sing, he told me, don't sing. <laughs> he said, you're a good guitar player, stick to guitar. And the only reason I ended up starting to sing was because I was in a band and the other guy was a decent singer and, and, and player. And I wrote this song that I wanted him to sing. And so I said, hey, I got the song. He said, can you play me the song? I played him the song with my not so good voice. And I said, what do you think? He said, I'm not singing your song. You sing your song. And the way he said it made me angry. And so I owe him a favor because I was like, oh, okay. I'm going to write better songs than you and I'm going to sing better songs than you. And so that began this journey of like, okay, I guess I got to be a singer because that's the only way we can kind of control my destiny here. Um, and it makes sense to me now, but at the time I was so, I mean, if you're, if your father tells you, you can't sing and he's a great professional musician, you know, it's kind of hard to get past that. <laughs> and, um, my voice has always been sort of a weird thing because not all everybody likes my singing voice. It's not a put on, it's just the way I sing. And I, I remember somewhere in my thirties, sort of, I don't know, feeling down about myself. And I thought, this is crazy. You're a platinum artist. You've made all these big albums and you're, you're getting caught up about your voice. Like, obviously somebody likes what you're doing. And somehow I, I freed me up to just kind of just go with it. And yeah, it's an it's interesting thing because what in, in the beginning seemed like a weakness, oh, your voice is too weird, is now kids ride in a car and the minute my voice comes on the radio, my kids point at the radio and say, there's daddy. Because they just know the sound of my voice. It's that different that it sticks out. So um, it, I, didn't, I didn't, honestly didn't want to be a singer. I really just want to be a guitar player. What is it that, because I'm like most people, I believe, that can look at some, something and say, I know what I like, I know what I don't like, but I'm not somebody that can look at an empty space and create that. You can as a songwriter. What, what is that? And most songwriters are more in touch. The ones that I've met are more in touch with things around them. That's the reason they can put it down on paper and make it into a lyric and make it into prose, what people are trying to think or sure. make a symbol out of something with words. What is the, the formation of a song when you start thinking of it and when you start to put it down on paper, how does that work in, in your mind? I love that question. Um, just a quick sketch. Um, oftentimes when I'm in a writing mode, I'll get up, as soon as I wake up, I'll go right to a piano. So I barely am awake and I'll start playing the piano and I'm just playing and it all just sounds very normal to me. Like, oh, that's nice, okay. And then I'll play something and I'll go, well, that's different. It's just like a catch of the attention. Just like he was talking about, it's it's the it's the songwriter equivalent of seeing Brock Lesnar. All of a sudden, I'm like, okay, there's something in this little thing right here, and whether you can, um, I guess, sustain the curiosity, where a day later, uh, you come back and you still feel that little kink in your heart, like, oh, that's something cool there. Uh, John Lee Hooker, the great uh, blues singer, they used to ask him how he remembered his songs. They said, do you write your songs down? He said, no, I write the song. And then I go to the movies, and if I come home and I still remember the song, it's a good song. It's got to have some personality or something that feels just different enough. Because if you're a musician, you listen to a ton of music, so you're very familiar with what's out there. So what sticks out in your own mind with your own curiosity and creativity is, is sometimes hard to get at. And for some reason, I, I think I've written over 400 songs at this point in my life. I've written songs for other people. Um, you know, the, the old way of saying is you kind of have a knack for it, but I, I don't know if you can teach it because I could teach you, I could teach anybody how to write a song, but the ability to recognize what it is about 
what you're writing is unique and what is dross and not worth holding on to. That's a weird skill. And I, no one taught me that. I just had it. And I had it from a very early age, which was weird to me because like I was saying about my voice, when I wrote songs, when I was very young, 18, 19, uh, nobody paid attention to the songs. So I didn't think I was writing very good songs, but I was actually writing good songs. And the reason they didn't like the songs is because they didn't understand what I was doing. So they were burying what I was doing because it was unique, but that uniqueness was exactly why I became a big songwriter later. But somehow I was able to maintain my integrity through that because everybody like same with resting, everybody's trying to tell you and tell you do this, do this. At some point you got to kind of know who you are. And somehow I knew who I was with songs, not as a person for sure. Um, I'm a much better songwriter than I am as a human being, but somehow I just knew what I was doing, but I could never in a million years tell you what that is. You know, Billy, Billy, do you notice that you, uh, you, you carry that, that same skill as for writing a song over to kind of writing your TV and, and uh, relating to your TV, the storyline that goes along with that. Are there any similarities in that? Yes, sir. It, it, it's the ability to organize something over a period of time, whether it's short or long. But I will say that booking is its own um, skill, um, you know, because there's there's different arts to booking. I mean, you can write it on paper, but it doesn't mean the talent believes in it. It doesn't mean it's right for their characters. Um, it doesn't even mean always that the audience even understands what you're trying to get at. I, I, I get this a lot sometimes in wrestling. People want me to dumb down what I'm doing in wrestling. They kind of do this thing like, oh, you know, wrestling fans aren't that bright, which I don't agree with, but wrestling fans aren't that bright. Just dumb it down and it'll work. And I, I'm just like Breaking Bad, you know, it's not a recent example, but like Breaking Bad is one of the most successful television series in the history of television. You know, it, it, it changed the way people view television, literally. It, that is a very sophisticated show. I, I just don't believe that the modern person watching modern television needs stupid storylines. And I'm at times surprised that wrestling hasn't adapted to the idea that there can be more nuance and subtext in, in, in a, in a storyline. Um, so I, I don't think I figured it out, but I'm still trying to figure it out the way I figured out songs. There's a sense, like I was telling John, there's a, uh, there's a sense that I can get at something there that only I feel. And I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but that's my feeling. And I refer back to my songwriting in the same way. There's a sense of curiosity. And when I look at the television and I do something right in quotations, I don't care if anybody gets it. It's weird. It's not It's not an arrogance. It's, oh, that's what I'm looking for. I want that feeling consistently with the NWA. And yeah, and it's the old fire, bad, water, good, Neanderthal type thinking. You know, that that's very comforting to people because it's very easy to understand. But when you make it gray, that's when it becomes also compelling. It's not as comfortable, but it's also more compelling, which is where storylines get when that become very successful. You, you mentioned the songwriting. Hot Rod was a good friend of mine and always would tell me about how to be a heel and stuff, which I appreciated so much, but it was always, you can't out Hulk the Hulk. Don't copy the top guy because you have the top guy. Every top guy that comes along is different significantly from the last top guy. When you started writing songs, do you realize that you were writing something different? Was that a conscious process that it was different from what other people were doing said, I'm not going to copy something that's there before, or was it just something that came out of you that was organic that you didn't really have a plan for you just needed an outlet for. Um, you know, I was, I, I remember a time I was in, in kind of in this weird sort of basement we had, and I was living with my father and I asked him a question about, I was trying to learn somebody else's song or something. And he said, don't bother with that. 
He said, write your own songs. If you're going to make money in the biz, that's it'd be as a songwriter, which turned out to be probably one of the best pieces of advice I ever I got. And um, so, but right away, my interest in music was different than other people because I was trying to put together things that people would put together. What would, what would now be called alternative music, although it wasn't called alternative back then, it was called new wave or whatever. And heavy rock, when we would put that style together, people would say, oh, this is awful. Like, what are you doing? So I got a lot of negative feedback, but I felt I was onto something. And so it was really more a process of taking something that was very different and figuring out how to bring it into the mainstream. And for that, I really looked towards bands like the Beatles. Um, I would I would literally sit with a Beatles song and I would say, okay, what is it that the Beatles do? Not to copy the what the Beatles were actually doing in terms of chords and melodies, but like, like almost like how you would lay out a match. Like, how do they start this song? How do they get into the chorus? How do they get out? How do they create tension? How do they bring you? How do they hold you at the end? I would just sit and break down songs, almost how you'd break down a match. And then I would take that thinking and then adapt it to my songwriting. So I took basically avant-garde songwriting thought or process and then put it into more of a traditional rock and roll format. And as soon as I did that, the band shot up like a rocket. We went from playing, in 1991, we were playing four or 500 people in a club. And, and by 95, we were headlining arenas. <laughs> and what you just told us as far as real time, you're in Denver right now. You sold out last night. So you're still hanging for the Raptors, as Ricky and Robert would say. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an unbelievable blessing. And um, especially post-pandemic, for people to come out put their good money on the table and, and want to see a good show. We're very appreciative. It's a cool time. And, and crazy is now there's tons of young fans. So whether it's Netflix series, my songs are in or Spotify and stuff like that. I don't know, but all of a sudden the crowd's really young and it's awesome because it's almost like having a second, uh, you know, adolescence again. You, you yeah. touched on it, uh, Billy, a little bit in your answer to John's question. You know, you, you're you're writing an alternative style, and you're getting negative feedback. Did you obviously you didn't let that negative feedback bother you? But did you know at the time that you were creating a different genre of the music? Was that your intent when you when you started? Well, it's it's a great question, really, because on one level, um, I didn't I didn't necessarily think we we would be big in the way that we got big because there was no evidence for that. It wasn't until Nirvana had their breakthrough album and went on and sold a gazillion copies and then were on the cover of Time. Up until that, alternative bands, if they were lucky, could sell out a building maybe four or 5,000 people, which is big. So our aspirations weren't, you know, to go sell out 15,000 people. It was like, oh, if we can play the 3,000, the 4,000, we're winning. We're rock stars and everybody's going to pat us on the head. Um, but yeah, you're conscious of the fact that you're doing something different. You're getting, you get a ton of negative feedback, uh, especially as a band from Chicago. We were told repeatedly, you can't be successful coming out of Chicago. You have to move to New York or LA. You have to play the game out there. You have to do all these stupid gigs that people would do. And somehow we were able to just put our heads down and say, no, it was like, um, how can I put it? It's like saying to yourself, I think I can be successful, but the only way I'm going to be successful is I do it my way. So if I do it my way and I win, I win like it's like winning the lottery. And if I don't, well, I'm willing to fail because I can't see how I would succeed the other way. I'm too weird. I look too weird. I sound too weird. My music's too weird. So I've got to figure out how to make this thing work. Um, 
and and back to some of what John was saying, uh, you know, about um, not trying to be Hulk or something, right? It's similar to that sometimes with resting talents. It's like, you know, you almost have to sit him down and say, look, can you assess who you are, what makes you different, what makes you stand out, and then amplify that and attract people to you? Because somehow, if you really think about it, and I'm going to use go back to music for a second, the biggest stars in music, there's only, I call it one of one. There's only one Jimi Hendrix, only one Barb Marley, only one Kurt Cobain, only one John Lennon, only one Lady Gaga. But people get it in their heads, almost in an insecure way, that by copying or being like something, that somehow it's going to be successful. And they're so I got it in my head is my point that if I was going to win, I had to win somehow with whatever this whatever this thing is. And it worked. And what's weird about it is then when it stopped working and there were times where it didn't work, then people try to get back in my head again and tell me, see, that was a fluke. Now you should do it this way. And I kept saying, well, I don't know how to do it the other way. I don't understand what compromise means. Um, if you could give me some magic pill to take it and make me successful again, I'd probably take it because I don't like being on the down. But somehow it's all worked out. It's just, it's a wild, crazy journey. I could have predicted in a million years. When did you realize, or was there a certain moment when you realized I'm a freaking star? <laughs> I, do I do have a story, right? So we played Saturday Night Live for the first time about 93. And then the next day, <laughs> which would have been Sunday morning, we had to fly to Houston because we had a gig. So Sunday morning, get on the plane, fly to Houston. I'm at the baggage thing. And I'm standing there and this guy's burning a hole in my head like this. Now I'm from Chicago. When a guy burns a hole in your head like that, he wants to pick a fight. <laughs> so finally I looked at the guy and I was like, you know, is there a problem? And he goes, were you on television last night? And I was like, oh my God, like, wow, this shit works. You know, start a cuss. You know, I couldn't believe it. I was like, this guy, and, it, and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't the young guy with a funny haircut. He was like a 50 year old guy. And I'm like, wow, that's weird. Like television you know goes up in space and this guy knows i couldn't believe it i saw an interview you did either with joe rogan or pierce morgan not sure i watched a bunch today they're they're all very good by the way uh you at one point went in and bought a ferrari with cash that ha i mean that's like the dream of everybody that's, that's that's rock and roll there brother that's i'm paying cash <laughs> i'll tell you the story if you don't mind it so uh i get it in my head i'm gonna buy a ferrari right i, I just it was like I didn't even look at a Ferrari. I was like, I'm going to go buy a Ferrari. <laughs> so I go to the, I go to the thing and the guys treat me really bad, you know, cause I'm a, you know, slumpy musician. Right. You know? And uh, he's asking me all these questions, very doubtful. And then at the end of it, he's like, uh, how are you going to, how are you going to pay for this? And I go cash. <laughs> and the look on his face was like, huh? It's like cash. Like I was waiting, I could, I, I, I set him up. I, mean, I was waiting to cut the promo the whole time. So I bought 164k cash. Boom! Wow! Wow! Let's go. What'd you bring it in? A briefcase or what? <laughs> two, like two, you know, two, uh, two paper bags from Jewel or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> she walked there with 164 thousand dollars in cash. And walked Hell, out John, that, 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 that was his merchandising money from the night before. There you <laughs> go. See? You understand. But it's the greatest feeling when you're when you're when you're getting the bike and you're going, oh, this is gonna be good. This is gonna be good. This is gonna be good. Uh -huh. Then finally, oh my gosh, <laughs> you set the hook on the guy with the cash. And then fast forward six months later, I'm driving that Ferrari too fast down a Chicago side street, and I get pulled over by two vice cops, right? Cop walks up. What are you racing into the Indy 500? <laughs> they, 
I get out of the car, you know, I'm wearing a long black leather coat. I got the shaved head, the whole, the whole gimmick. And they, and they immediately thought I stole the car because they, they, they couldn't believe that I owned this car. Right. So I sat there for 15 minutes while they ran the VIN numbers and the whole thing. And I'm talking to the cop and the cop goes up, how much did you pay for this car? And, you know, I know CPD guys, right? So I go, do you really want to know how much I paid for this car? He's like, tell me. And I told him $164,000 cash. You know, the guy's probably making 70K a year at that point. This is in the 90s. And the guy just kind of slunk away because like, what's he going to say? He went from thinking that I couldn't afford the car to now I'm telling me I just paid 164K cash for the thing. So. Yeah, he went from thinking he can't pay for the car to think, I just pulled over Tony Stark. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, I, I don't know. It's one, moments, it's one of those moments in life you know that's that's what I was, I was interested about was you know when you first realized you know you went from to being this massive star and there had to be that point where all of a sudden you realize wow this is kind of cool people i'm well, what i'm doing is actually working which yeah is, i mean in 1990 I, you know, I was working a record store me, earning i'm sorry i didn't interrupt you please money to me is always a barometer you know of stuff you know it's just the the success of your art to me was always the greatest thing and and you had that and when you realized that i always thought that was that to me that's the coolest point in somebody's life that has become like you have uber successful well that's but that goes back to a little bit what we were talking about because you know we thought we were going to be big but not like that big so you know i go from making 12k a year at a record store in 1992 I'm, um, you know, buying Ferraris for cash, not too many years later. It's that's a wild ride, right? You know, yeah. you literally become the thing that you make fun of. <laughs> right. And obviously there were a lot of down years in between that time where you could put that 164K on. on a oh, paper. yeah. No, that's you, you want some of that money back at some point for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, with, uh, your music career, it's rolling, it's rolling. And, and all this time you have this hidden desire for wrestling. Kind of, yes. kind of walk us through that 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 nightmare of being a double personality with this. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I, my first ever wrestling show was actually a uh, a WWF house show, circa '99, and uh, and so you know, yes, sir, at the at what used to be called the uh, Rosemont Horizon. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, great building. <laughs> when when times were bad, that was the one arena that we drew in. It was always a good crowd. Chicago was always one of the best towns for us, uh, even when times were now, 99 times were good again because Steve had gotten really hot in the rock. Yeah, along, but Chicago was always great for us. The old Ro- Rosemont. So, you know, celebrity stuff. So somebody calls somebody and and they said, who do you want to meet? You know, they're, they're going to bring out somebody to meet me or something. So I said, I want to meet Foley. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm backstage at the Rosemont Horizon. I've never been to a wrestling show in my life. Now I'm hanging out with Foley eating donuts. Triple H is there. Rock's there. China's there. <laughs> I'm hanging out with everybody, right? And, and and Stone Cold. And everybody was so cool. Like they were smart. They were funny. Charismatic, obviously. And I was like, wow, these this, these are more interesting people than I would imagine. So after that, I started going to you know ECW shows, stuff like that. And I got to know some of the boys and, you know, like, like, you know, the mark you become, I started asking questions like, why is this? And why was this finished this way? And why did he use the lead pipe and all that stuff? And guys I made friends with in the business started smartening me up to how the politics work and stuff like, I just found it fascinating. It was like stumbling upon the greatest sort of weird thing that you could imagine. The behind the scenes part of the business is honestly more fascinating to me than what goes on in front of the camera. 
And so I got kind of lured into the business at some point. I was working on the indies in, in Chicago um, and I did that for a while. And it was kind of, it ended in a sour way. I got a reality show that never went anywhere. It actually was- Wait, wait, you're, you're working on the indies. You were actually working matches or what? Oh, no, no. I, that's not, those are for the okay. tough guys like you. No, sir. <laughs> I was I was booking shows and kind of part okay. of this company, an indie company in Chicago. You know, classic stuff. You know, you got some indie workers and then a, a name guy would come in and sign autographs. You know, the basic stuff. I did that for a few years. I actually got an, a, a reality show signed by AMC, which was a very hot network at the time. And uh, and we started making the series. I thought it'd be fun to kind of do a kind of behind the scenes, kind of cool kabuki thing, but with indie wrestling. They love this series, but then they end up canceling all their reality show programming. So the show never got made other than these four episodes that never aired. So I thought, okay, I'm done with wrestling. The whole thing fell apart. Okay, I'm good. I'm going to go back to my day job. A few months later, Dixie Carter calls me from TNA. Hey, you want to come in and, and be part of the office uh, and, and produce? And it was like, oh, this is kind of interesting, you know? And I so I learned the business inside, even though TS, TNA was very dysfunctional, I learned how to produce segments, which as you both know, are is very important to how a wrestling company sort of gets its product across. I, I started learning how to work with talent. I started learning how to book for real at that level for television. And so I did that for a few years. And at one point I even took over the company and I invested in the company and that turned into a whole public mess. And so when that was done and the lawsuits had settled, <laughs> I thought, okay, I'm really done with professional wrestling. And I walked away and, you know, a few weeks later, somebody calls me and says, Hey, the NWA is for sale. Would you be interested? Wow. <laughs> and here we are, uh, you know, some five years later. Go yeah. Going back, working with Dixie and, and uh, you're, you're working with talent. Now, some of these talents at TNA were, were starred talent like Mick Foley and some of these. How did, how did they accept you as, as an outsider coming in? I mean, we, we've seen that when writers come in for us, but you're not the, you're not, the ordinary writer you're a superstar and you're coming in and sharing your knowledge with to me you know a great performer if you're a great performer in your business a great performer is a great performer in any business so they had to be just licking their chop to get knowledge from you in my opinion well you know that's again another great question to try to tackle i found that uh who i was really didn't mean much to the talent um, in their mind, and I don't, I can't say it was what they were thinking, but this is the way I sort of surmised it. They didn't really see how I could help them other than maybe my influence in the office with booking. Outside of that, they didn't think I could do anything for their career. And they weren't particularly interested in me as an artist, unless they were fans and some were, but most weren't. And so they just kind of treated me like an outsider. Some people treated me honestly, very, very badly. Um, you know, I don't want to say it was hazing, but it was definitely disrespectful. But I'm I'm tough enough and 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 not dumb enough to have run to the office and tattled. I just kind of tried to navigate my way through, and I made relationships which last to this day. Uh, Drew Galloway, who was Drew McIntyre at the time, you know, tremendous talent, had been in the WWE, came out, and then eventually has now gone back and one of the top guys, of course. But Drew was a guy who was smart enough to understand and pick my brain about the bigger world. Uh, you know, he was able to get out of the wrestling bubble and try to understand Billy's had all these experiences and Billy's been on these big stages. So he would pick my brain because he's a smart guy. Other guys just rejected me a whole cloth. He can't do anything for me. He's just a stooge. He's it's some celebrity thing. It's some Dixie thing, blah, blah, blah. The way I really felt I earned my stripes was really producing and, and, and getting there in the morning, taking talent in the corner, producing segments and getting those talent over on television. When they started getting on television more because of the segments I was producing, 
and their value went up on the indie circuit and all that stuff, that's when the talent started treating me differently. They saw where I could directly influence their ability to draw. And I and I started to respect that. And, and I it became less of like, you should respect me because of who I am and more like, okay, I'm going to prove it to you that I'm a valuable person in this business and not expect that you, you care about who I am in another business. And that really changed the tenor of my relationship in, in, in TNA. And if you look at some of the people who are currently wrestling uh, in the NWA, whether it's an EC3 or a Tyrus, that goes back to those relationships that we formed where they understood that I was there to help them get over, that I wasn't there to sort of just peacock around. Um, I take great pride in making the NWA not about me. You know, I, I, I understand wrestling fans want to see the great stars perform at the highest level. And that's what I'm here to do to facilitate that. Yeah, Ron, Ron Fuller we had on just recently, he was the same way. He's a great, terrific promoter, and he, he always never made it about him. In fact, he a lot of times didn't even want to wrestle, even though he was a great talent himself. It was, it, but that's a rare trait uh, with the promoter. It's it's very tempting to, to put yourself into the mix. Have you ever been tempted to put yourself in the mix like that? Well, I, mean, I, I know you really have, but how close have you come to saying, you know what, I'm just going to be a character? Uh, I do it a little bit, but I, I try to kind of st- – I basically kind of play myself with right. a little bit of turned up for wrestling volume, but um, I, I, I don't, I, I, if I had my druthers, I wouldn't be part of the show at all, but there is something where me being involved does help. Um, but I'm well, very huge cautious name value. about that. It, it, you know, you have huge name value. It, it makes sense for you too. You know, I remember when Oprah started up her network, she wasn't on it and she's, she was the biggest name in television. You know, it was a, yeah. in hindsight, the mistake not to have her own show on, on, on our network. Uh, question I have for you, we talk about backstage producing. MTV wrote about you that you treated your videos like art, not just like albums, uh, marketing and sales for sales. Yeah. Did you do a lot with your MTV uh, videos that you had? Did you produce a lot of those, have a lot of input with those? Is that where you got your training and in, in producing things? Yes, sir. Um, yeah, I, I found really early on, um, uh, and I'll be simple about it. In this is early '90s stuff. I can't say how it works now, but there was kind of a thing like, okay, you're a young band. They're going to sign you a director who doesn't want to make music videos. He wants to make Nike commercials. So you're just his prop. The record company is going to give him thirty grand, fifty k to make a video. He doesn't really care what happens to you. And but yet, your fans or your hopefully future fans are going to watch and they're going to figure out who you are, who they think you are. So it was very weird to me that there wasn't more concern with the way that the way the band would be portrayed would be and received by fans was bigger deal to the record companies. So very early on, I got, I started fighting with everybody and saying, we won't do this. We won't do that. And one of the most famous things that happened was, um, on her, excuse me, on her second album, we put out a video with MTV and it did okay. And it was very arty. Um, and, but it was more the director had done this really kind of crazy thing. I mean, he took film and put it in a bathtub and washed it with acid. So we looked all like we were distorted. And anyway, the video didn't do that well for MTV. So the, the record label started panicking and they wanted us to make on our second video what I call the band against the wall video. You know, they put the band against a brick wall and the band acts all tough and that's your video, right? <clears throat> I had this idea where I would play an ice cream truck driver because in my real life, when I was a kid, there was an ice cream truck on the street Kids were all gathered around it. I went over, guy said, pick out what you want. I picked out what he wanted. I went to pay for it. He said, uh, it's on me. I said, why? He said, I'm quitting this job. I hate this job. I've been giving away all the ice cream. 
So I, I this stuck in my brain. And so I was like, I want to make a video based on this real life incident where I'll play the ice cream truck driver. And, you know, I go to pick up the band and the record company was like, absolutely not. You cannot make this video. You're insane. You're going to destroy your career. And I held my ground and somehow I got the video made and it went on to be this super iconic video. So that became a way of like proof is concept, right? I proved the concept that the band being portrayed more as characters than like the band against the wall, like every other band was good for business. And in a little way, kind of aping off the Beatles where every Beatle had its own individual personality. I tried to present the band as four distinct personalities um and and worked hard and you have to work with directors and producers and budgets and so that was really very early training with kind of the time is money which we deal a lot with in wrestling you know because in a perfect world everybody wants to look perfect and everything's fine but we all know wrestling does it just doesn't work that way right and when the thing about wrestling you know it's, it's very similar to music what what if you've been around since the 80s 90s jerry's been around since the 20s and 30s <laughs> the 1820s and 30s <laughs> but we've seen things change dramatically and i don't know if in, a, in another period of 40 years if things have tr changed that dramatically say from 1900 to 1940 or 1850 to 1890 something like that but you saw the real wild times of the 70s 80s and 90s in everything in sports and wrestling and music and now you're seeing a complete different version how has what commonalities have you seen as far as say wrestling and music, as far as the performing of it on stage with between say music and wrestling and how that's changed over 30, 40 sure. years. I think the probably the challenges that both businesses face is you have such a complicated marketplace that the temptation is to make social media sort of the core of how you attract an audience, but I don't think it necessarily translates into long-term business. So it's kind of like, you know, burning down your house to stay warm. It's a weird thing it's very hard to preach traditional value in the business both in music and wrestling that's moved very away from its traditional core of how to promote and gets into a lot of other stuff so i think that's a it's one of those questions it's a great question and i don't really honestly have an easy answer for it i do know that um one thing that i've really learned in in dealing with professional wrestling at the ground level repeatedly in the last five to seven years and where it has influenced me in the musical thing is is if you get 10,000 people in an arena like I had last night, you gotta give them something to talk about. Just getting up and playing well isn't enough. There has to be something, whether they're gonna take a picture or talk about something that happened, you have to give them enough because that part of the world is not gonna change now. That's permanent, like let's call it hashtag world or share on Instagram world. You have to give them something because they, they they have to go into the world and tell people that what you just did is was worth seeing and how they can't miss it, what we call FOMO, right? You know, fear of missing out. Um, and wrestling really does deal with FOMO much better than the music business because music business is really, I'm not, say, I'm not saying re wrestlers are not egoistic, but the way you're raised in the music business from an egoistic point of view, um, it, it, it doesn't always translate in understanding how that will make good business. Wrestling, we all learn, and I've had to learn later in life is it's a team effort, right? Um, you know, you, you can have two great wrestlers, but if the angle sucks, you know, nobody cares about the match type, type of thing. Re uh, musicians are taught that just standing on stage, that, you know, there's a glow around them and that's enough. But in the modern world, I don't think that works. And you, so you see a lot of not as good artists and lesser artists getting over because they're better at social media and creating almost like a cartoon 
you know, a superhero persona and people buy into it and the music becomes secondary. So it doesn't make sense the way I'm saying it. it's like the business. Yeah, yes, it, yes, it does. yeah, yeah. It, they, they become a, a social media character instead of who they are. Do you do you see a lot of similarities in, in the in the wrestling talent and some of your 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 contemporaries in the rock and roll business? Do you, you see it? And the, and the stars, you know, the, the, are, are the stars, their attitude and their their demeanor the same as, as wrestling and rock and roll? Well, there, there seems to be something that's happening uh, across the board in the entertainment spectrum where um, a star has to be interesting, like not just in, in the movie or on stage, but in real life. It's like, a, like a, it's almost like a 24 hour reality show. That's a weird thing. Um, because if you look at the, let's go back to the golden age of Hollywood, which you can argue the business was never bigger than it was in the 30s, in, that, in the era of the Wizard of Oz and all that stuff. What they did is they, they, they protected those stars and they only presented them when they, when they were at their absolute best. The pictures were perfect. The movies were perfect. If they went out and did a personal appearance, they were wearing minks and their hair was, you know, when they presented them as like sort of gods. Now you're supposed to sort of buy into this guy in a $200, $400 million movie as Batman. And then you go on his Instagram and he's walking his dog and talking about, I don't know, he stubbed his toe. It's a weird... <laughs> That's a weird combo. It seems antithetical to business. And I think often it is. People like to point to and say, well, it works for this one guy. But what I always say, yeah, but it doesn't work for the 9,999 others that can't get over. Yeah, I agree completely. I've always thought that guys would, would do something and take themselves out of that character so badly on social media that it hurts them. You know, Larry Hagman used to wear his cowboy hat everywhere when he was J.R. Ewing. Not because he was trying to fool people that he was J.R. Ewing in real life, but that's what people wanted to see. And so many times we have guys who will do something and then on social media, they're completely different. I think the only guy who can look like himself all the time is The Rock, but he looks he looks better than his video game anyway. Yeah. He's so. Well, the, the, the first time I met you, I was a fan of JBL, you know, the wrestler. And the first time I, I think it was at a WrestleMania, you and I talked for about 10 minutes and you were smoking a cigar and you came up and started talking to me and I was scared to talk to you because I believed JBL, the character. And now I'm talking to you, the real person. I'm, I'm still like, there's JBLs in there somewhere, right? Did you ever, you know, I always thought, Michael Jordan, who obviously you're a big Chicago fan. I always thought the, one of the appeals of Jordan was the tongue hanging out and people watching him play with such passion. He was arguably the greatest player of all time. You can argue that with Bill Russell and a few others, but one of, if not uh, the greatest of all time, but people loved paying their money to watch a guy enjoy themselves. Uh, when you played music, uh, we still play music, but I'm the same, yeah. but when you're out on stage, it's similar to like when we're in a, a town every single night, I would always change the matchup because I would get bored. I wanted to stay fresh for the audience. You don't have that option a lot because people want to hear the same, the songs that have made you so popular that they love so much that they've listened to for a couple of decades. How do you t bring yourself into something creative every single night when you're playing a lot of the same set, even though you have new music, but you're playing a lot of the same set? I love that you're asking that. Um, when we were younger, we used to play a different set every night because we wanted to sort of have that dopamine hit of like the, the anxiety versus can we pull it off? About 15 years ago, I had a, a private conversation with Pete Townsend and he shocked me because he said the Who always played the same set every night. And the Who was known as one of the most crazy rock and roll bands ever. So I said, 
why would you guys with that rep play the same set every night? He said, we figured out every second of that show how to maximize our impact. So what we've done in our, in our elder years is by playing the same set every night, we figured out we're going to make the show rock every second of the night and, and learn how to lean into it and make it better. And then after the show talk, oh, that one spot there, we could have done that better and you should have done that. And so it's made us sort of more disciplined. But to, to, to the spirit of your question, I think that um, I, I agree with you 1000%. People focus with a ban on the set list. How many hits are you going to play this classic and stuff like that? I honestly don't think that's why people go to shows. They want to see you have the experience of playing the song. So if you're bored and thinking about your taxes, I think then even if you play the song, they walk away kind of disappointed because it doesn't meet the thing in their head. So you just got to get yourself in the space. I think at this point at 55, it's a space of appreciation. It blows my mind. Like, um, and I'm probably wrong, but I'm just going to throw out like some stupid numbers, right? Like Spotify every year will post like how many uh, listens you have and how many unique. I think the last time I looked, I think we had something like 24 million unique listeners in one year and 240 million song listens or something. <coughs> this is mind boggling numbers, right? For, for a guy who grew up in a basement. So I, when I'm in now is in, at this point in my life, I, I try, if I'm standing there and I'm playing a song, I played a thousand times. I try to find somebody in the crowd who's excited. I try to find a young person who's having their first concert. And I try to put myself back in their seat and think, if I can't appreciate what they're here for, then I'm in the wrong place. I need to go home and read a book. I live in a very nice house, right? I've been able to sort of flip the script where it's not about me. It is about me. And they're there to see me, but, but my job is to show them something that, that convinces them that what's happening is real. Um, people don't like the pumpkins because we're fake. They like us because we're weird and real. Um, I go up on stage every night in a dress with makeup on. Don't ask me why. And, 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 and what's even weirder is I walk on stage like that and nobody even blinks because I'm such a weirdo, you know? But that's just who I am. And so if I can really get into the heart of that and appreciation of that, I would say as a Christian, even it's like get in the space of a God-like appreciation, meaning thank you, God, for this opportunity. Thank you for allowing this to happen. Thank you, God, for giving me even the, the chance to speak. My father, who we talked about before, never had even remotely the kind of success I had. And I watched him really suffer for that, really feel uh, discarded or something, right? So even thinking about my father who passed away in the last year, it's like I try to put all those pieces together. And if I can get there, then I then then I can see people's I can see it in their faces that, that they're getting the show that they want from me. Yeah, and it's so tough on this young generation because you look at like let's say wrestling, I mean we which obviously Jerry and I know a lot better. We had the territories. And so we wrestled all over the world before we end up getting up on a big stage and being in a place where a lot of people could see us. So we had this wonderful educational background of all this stuff we put in the bag that we knew we had done so many things in so many different areas didn't mean we were good but we at least had been in a lot of different circumstances you had the same educational experience of growing up playing in clubs until you get to the 20,000 and 30,000 people that educational experience is almost impossible to replicate and that's what we're seeing now a lot with young people in both music and in wrestling you know, I don't know how they succeed. I mean, I don't know how The Miz comes from a reality television and puts together a Hall of Fame career. Right. He is incredible. 
but he didn't have that education. He had to learn it kind of on the, not kind of, he did. He learned it on the fly. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it seems like almost a handicap. Well, it is a handicap, I believe for a lot of these young guys. And it's hard to be able to give them that knowledge because they don't have that educational experience of like in rock and roll playing in clubs before you get yeah. to the 20,000. Well, you can, you can go on YouTube now and you can watch an eight-year-old kid playing Eruption by Eddie Van Halen. Perfect. Note for note. Every bit. I can't do it. And you can go, oh, that's pretty cool. But it's kind of weird, right? Because Eddie Van Halen played in clubs. Eddie Van Halen was, a, was, was an immigrant from another country, arrived in America not even speaking English. He was a genius. When you hear him playing Eruption, you just don't hear a skilled guy playing you can hear all that experience of playing in backyards and clubs it's all in there and so um you can see it where you know and i i obviously i deal with a lot of young talent you know watching youtube videos and marking out for you know some japanese wrestler and they they miss that you don't understand like sometimes the perfect move is to do nothing <laughs> you know what i mean sometimes but you can only learn that the Smashing Pumpkins, you know, the first gigs we had were Chicago's a rough town. Wednesday night in a bar where people are looking to get laid and drunk, they don't want to hear some no weird screechy music. <laughs> so we had to figure out how to get them to pay attention to us, you know, um, and it, it was horrible. But we learned something that I, I still walk on stage with all these years later. So I'm with you on that. I wish there was... Um, a different way about it. Um, I, I I don't know how to explain sometimes to the young guys like I, I've I, and I know you know this conversation. It's like I can do this and I got this many Instagram fans and da da da. I, I had this conversation recently with the young talent. He was painting a picture of who he wanted to be. Great. Uh, he had high aspirations. Great. And he 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 was trying to understand why he wasn't booked higher up in the card. And I pointed and I said, and we had sold that night, you know, 650 tickets in a place that could easily hold 2,200 or something. I said, until you can sell those tickets, I don't want to hear about it. Because I was in the same spot. So you're talking to the wrong guy. You know, when I was you, did I want somebody to do me a favor and pull me up the card? Absolutely. When I would go to Europe in 1992 and play at 4 p.m. with guys throwing beers at my head, do you think I, you think I was having a great time? <laughs> Well, I, I love to hear these similarities to, you know, to our, our business and, and your, your, your meat and potatoes business, music. And uh, along the way there, I mean, you know, as you found out being an owner and, and having a, a independent promotions in the past, wrestlers have great sense of humor and they, they like to rib each other. They, you know, people, normal people call it hazy, haze each other. Do you guys have that in the music business or is there anything like it or the ego is so big that you can't do that? Let me, let me tell you a little secret. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Pretty much everybody in the music business hates each other. Okay. So <laughs> if there's any hazing go or ribbing going on, it's going to end in, in bloodshed. <laughs> <laughs> because, and, 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 I, and okay. It's a bit stiff the way I'm putting, but let me put it to this way. This is what I love about wrestling. Guys who don't like each other and girls that don't like each other are forced to work together. They have to learn to work safely and, and, and get each other over to be to continue to work. Music business, you are raised, that's your enemy. That guy in front of you on the bill or that guy behind you on the bill, they are your enemies. So you grew up in this weird space where you don't want to deal with anybody. 
they hate you and you hate them. <laughs> yeah, you might smile and wave in the hallway, but you, you want to kill them and they want to kill you. And it's only later after everybody's kind of succeeded and made the cut. Then you actually like I there are guys that I hated back in the day that I hang out with now and get to see each other. And it's all meet the kids. And it's awesome. And we laugh because we go, I hated you and you hated me because that's just the way we were raised in that business because it was so cutthroat. Wow. I, I want to get to the NWA, but I saw a great story you told, I think, with Joe Rogan about when you almost ruined the, the Bulls championship by, by forcing uh, Dennis Rodman to go to uh, Vegas. <laughs> you want me to tell that story? Or? Please, yes. <laughs> yes, which I'm exaggerating. It's the, it was the other way around. But, that, no, uh, but, I, but here's the story. So, um, so uh, I think it's, is it Larry Ellison who owns Oracle? Yes. yes. Okay, so the Bulls are playing in Utah. This is the first, because they, they played them two years in a row. Mm -hmm. So it's the, it, it was the year before Michael retired. So I went to every game home and away during the whole playoff run. So I'm in Utah and, um, and hanging out with Dennis. And Dennis says, do you want to go to Vegas with us? And I'm like, what, what, what do you mean? There's, there, you guys just played. There's an off day and you're going to go to Vegas on the off day. Oh, yeah. I'm like, you have permission to do that? I can do whatever I want. Okay. Uh, Phil said I could do whatever I want. Okay. So now I'm on a private plane with Hillary Allison flying from Salt Lake to Vegas. We land, you know, I don't know what time we landed because it was after a game. You know, he's just on national TV. Now we're in Vegas and he's playing craps. Up all night, all night, no sleep. Get on, get on the same private plane back because he's got to make a 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. shoot around. <laughs> wow. Right. So I'm I'm the only person in the stands like this, like hand, you know, dying, and they're out there doing a shoot around. <laughs> he finishes his shoot around, press, whatever, you know, the game's the next day. His entourage starts to gather up security, some, some CPD work private for him, blah, blah. We go and uh, where are we going? Oh, we're going back to Vegas. Huh. What do you mean? We're going back to, we're going back to Vegas. <laughs> I'm not going to Vegas. They made me ride with them to the airport. And Dennis got on a, uh, a, a, you know, like a, a normal jet. <laughs> he's one of the most famous people in the world. Has, hasn't been to bed. They called, they called Larry Ellison to see if he'd get the plane. And Larry Ellison's like, or somebody with Larry Ellison said, what are you talking about? Like, we just put the plane away. He jumps on a, on a public flight. You know, I mean, and, and remember everybody, this is Dennis Rodman, 96 Dennis Rodman. You could not walk three feet without a hundred people. Grandma, little kids, Dennis, 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 Dennis. So we, now he's walking through the airport. They make me go with them. Not, and I'm like, I'm not going to hell with you guys. You're insane. Okay. So they, they've been, they've been off. Now I know some people in the Bulls camp, friends with some of the players and the wives, because you're just kind of in the camp. Um, it's definitely being a mark, let me tell you, because I used to say people, people say, why are you hanging with the Bulls? I said, this is the 1927 Yankees. You're never going to see this yeah. again. This is a traveling rock show. And it was amazing. Saw Michael play 60 times in person. Didn't, doesn't get any better. So somehow that day I go to lunch somewhere, somewhere in Park City where they were staying, because Jerry, uh, was it? Can't remember, it was not Jerry Reinsdorf, the guy who was the Kraus, who was the Krauss, G yeah. GM. He believed it was better for the Bulls to stay at attitude uh, altitude, so when they came down, they would be more acclimated to the. So we're up in Park City. I go to sorry, this is I, I swear this this is a good finish. So somebody takes me to lunch. I'm hanging out with like a wife or somebody, 
but so I have somebody I'm friendly with. And as we're sitting there, there's uh, Phil Jackson's family uh, when he was married before. So it's, you know, the Jacksons. And I met people, hi, how you doing? Great, beautiful day, eating outside. Here comes Phil Jackson. He sees me sitting there and he gives me the death glare because <laughs> it's my fault. Okay. And I want, you know, my, my instinct was to want to go up and go, Phil, it wasn't me. You know, it, you don't, you don't care about me. He wants to win a championship. You know what I mean? So, so from then on, whenever Phil Jackson saw me, I got the death glare. <laughs> You're the rock and roll guy that influenced Dennis Rodman. <laughs> I'm the one telling him don't go back to Vegas. Right. And he, I mean, cause, cause somehow he worked it out with the team or with Phil where he was allowed to do what he wanted to do. So think about that. He's in the NBA finals. He gets on a plane after the game, goes to Vegas, parties all night, comes back for the shooting round, gets on another plane, a public plane, flies back to Vegas, parties the entire time, makes it back in time for the game and plays. <laughs> I don't know how you do that and get away with that on a, on a team playing in the NBA finals, but he did it. That was Rodman. <laughs> what could you say? What And what a difference he made with that team. He was one of the best defensive players of all time. He's one of the few guys that could guard Shaq. You and I got the same eye. I used to point to people and say, look how big Shaq is and look how big Dennis is. How is Dennis guarding? Remember, they used to have to do the thing with the elbow or like right. they can only yeah. bend their arm and all that stuff. He get he guards Shaq one and one. Dennis was so crazy. Dennis is one of the most freakishly strong people I've ever met. You know, Dennis was, Dennis told me when he was, he had a growth spurt when he was about 22, he grew six inches. So coming into college or coming out of junior college or whatever, he was only about 6'2", 6'3", he wasn't recruited. And then he grew six inches and suddenly everybody wanted him. Dennis looked, didn't look strong, but I'm, we used to go hang out at a club in Chicago and we'd always be behind the velvet rope type of thing. Dennis hated anybody who disrespected women. He was crazy sensitive about that. If he saw any man disrespecting any woman in our, in our, in our crew, he went berserk. And some guy was doing something and he reached over and he grabbed the guy by the trapezius and with one hand lifted the guy in the air like this and put him over the velvet rope and sent the guy down. I mean, crazy strong. Like, I, 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 I mean, not many people I don't think could do that. It was like a movie thing, you know, which is he just lifted him like, boop, get out of here. Yeah, and I'm with you on the Bulls. You know, if Michael's dad unfortunately hadn't passed away and he hadn't re retired and played baseball for those couple of years, I mean, they would have won maybe eight straight. And they, if, you, if they, they hadn't broken the team up after that, they had that strike-shortened year. They would have won that year. They could have won another one. They could have won nine or ten. I mean, they, they could have been the same as the Celtics. Yeah. It, if I could just say one thing about Michael that always impressed me is he, he not only was the most gifted offensive basketball player of his generation, he liked to play defense. He liked mentally destroying the other shooter. He talked junk the entire game. I used to ask guys because I'd run to guys that played against him. The stuff he would say to guys on the court, <laughs> I can't repeat. You know what I mean? The, the simple stuff, he's like, you can't stop me tonight. I'm going for 60. You can't stop me. He did a three-pointer. You can't stop me. You can't stop me all night. But then he'd say stuff about the guy's wives. I mean, he, it was vicious. <laughs> but they played defense like crazy, that team. Um, between Scottie Pippen, uh, Dennis, and, and Michael, when they decided to shut down another team, it was crazy because it was they were so gifted offensively, but defensively, man, that when they turned up the heat, wow, it was something. Yeah, one of the yeah, biggest was... tips I saw of Michael was uh, some uh, practice. 
and Jordan was there running sprints or something. It was just some practice in the middle of the, the season. He won every sprint by about 15 feet. And he's the greatest player, at, at least for sure, that generation, maybe of all time. What an example he was. I mean, it's like it was like Bo Jackson. You know, Bo Jackson was that rare combination of incredible talent that also had this desire like Jordan. You know, he wished he hadn't got hurt. Good grief. Yeah. Special. Yeah. But that, that to me was the essence of Jordan. And again, we go back to one of the reasons people love watching him play because they knew that he was playing with passion. Well, he liked to win. I mean, that was obvious. Yeah. I mean, remember in those two seasons, they were 72 and 10 and they were 70 and 12. And I think over those two years, I think they lost two or three playoff games. So they were what, 150 and 20 yeah. over two seasons? <laughs> I mean, that was just ridiculous. The NWA, what, what is your vision for the NWA? I mean, it's it's one of the greatest, good, maybe the greatest. I mean, you only have two that exist now, WWE from WWWF, but this was 15 years earlier, uh, one of the greatest organizations of all time. What is your vision for it as far as going forward? I mean, to what do you, would you like it to look like in, say, five or ten years? Well, first of all, and, and it's been very hard for the, the general wrestling community to understand, is – to me, the, the NWA is a mainstream product. I want to bring back a mainstream, traditional mainstream wrestling product to television, national television or international television. It's not complicated. Um, in terms of in terms of the vibe, I like that old shooter vibe. I, I want you to watch people that you believe can beat your ass. That's it. And 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 I want the toughest to win, and I want the toughest to feel like they're the stars of our company. And it's interesting because as I've pivoted to that over the last 18 months and really built the company around the toughest people, not always the biggest, but the toughest people, I really see how it's starting to really click. In essence, I finally connected that, that passion that I had for Bruiser when I was a kid to the modern version of the NWA. A lot of people in the wrestling community, and I know it's a hotly debated topic, you know, they like what's going on with you know, you know, I call it the, you know, the eight star Meltzer matches and all that stuff. And I like that stuff too. But if we're just talking business, just straight business, not uh, fan fan stuff, I still believe in Brock Lesnar versus Bobby Lashley. And in this upcoming main event, you know, Matt Cardona, who's recast himself on the, on the independent scene as a, as a, the star that he is versus Tyrus, who's, you know, six, eight, 375 pounds versus Trevor Murdoch, who's, six three and another 350 i want to see that match and if if that's the if you don't if and i like to say is if you if you don't want to see stuff like that don't watch the nwa because that's when i'm going to give you more and more of that and as we climb and as i'm able to kind of develop younger talent in in the mold of the nwa it we will be the toughest hardest hitting <coughs> wrestling promotion in the world i know i know there's the strong style in japan but to me that's a different psychological yeah, I, hard to explain. Yeah. I don't mean it, it disrespectfully. Is. It's no, just right. a different psychology. Yep, we get it completely. Yeah, 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 completely. The yeah, strong style of Japan, Jerry, Jerry I mean, can explain it so much better than me. It was completely different from what we did in Texas, which was pretty hardcore, to yeah. what they did in Florida, which was very much what you're talking about, the old NWA shooter style of wrestling. Yeah. It's significantly different, right, Jerry? Right, it, it certainly is. But what what I really like about about your 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 show, I, I went back and I watched some of your your taping, Jeff. Well, the one that you, which you did at the Chase, 
I mean that that was that was old memories. That that's cre recreating old school TV. I think what you did, and you did a masterful job on that. You Thank and your you. crew there, and I I really enjoyed that series. But I watched several of your TVs, and and you know you're getting what you, what your your vision is of that old school type for morassing. A lot of a lot of no glitz and glamour stuff like that, but solid good basic competition among the guys, the talent in the ring, and you got you got some terrific talents. You just named them right there. That's some of your guys that that are really good. And you got a couple of young ladies that are kind of setting the bar too for for. Yeah, for, we, for I, I I make the argument we probably have the toughest women in the in the, in the business right now. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love I love women who can be strong beautiful and 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 vicious i think i think that's a beautiful combination and with the men i want i want i want the meanest toughest ele elephants in the middle of the ring if you can't hang then go go impress somebody else somewhere else my nwa will be if it's you want to call it old school you want to call it awa you want to call it florida with eddie graham or you call it whatever you want i, I put it this way and 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 i say this of course respectfully to you mr briscoe i i want you or if bruiser in heaven i want you guys to look at what we're doing and be proud because i believe that is the business i don't and i'm not saying there isn't other variations of the business if you ask me in rock and roll who are the greatest bands of all time i'll tell you led zeppelin the beatles because they were great at every level in every facet of the game and when i look at the old school style why was it that way? Because it was going to draw the most money and bring the most people in. And it did repeatedly. Now we've broken in all these micro genres and subcults and stuff like that. I still believe the business in capital letters is what I'm describing. And so it's, and again, it's not sentimental, but I, I would hope that when you see what we're doing and as we progress, you would say, that's the business. That's the way to draw. That's the way to keep people coming back. Yeah. Everything else is kind of a, it's kind of to me like a t-shirt, you know, you could put it on and you could take it off and you could put on another t-shirt to take it off. But the core of the business for me will always be bruiser, you know, or, uh, I, you, you know, the names, I mean, they're all legends, Harley, you know, uh, I like to talk about, uh, I remember being a kid watching and they, here comes Harley race. And I'm like, why is this guy whispering? Right. <laughs> Why is he whispering? By the end of the promo, I was physically scared of a guy <laughs> through the television. And nothing I've ever heard about Harley told me that my my instinct to be afraid of this man was wrong, right? Billy, Billy, we all were afraid of that man. <laughs> <laughs> I, can I tell you a quick story if you don't mind it? Sure. Please. So it was the WrestleMania a few years back when when the when the company was in uh, Phoenix out there. And Harley was riding around on that little scooter, you know, uh, Roto-Rooter thing, right? And somehow I was, it was during the day and I was out on the street and I was staying at the same hotel as the company. And as I'm standing on the street on my own and around the corner comes Harley on the little scooter thing. And I'm a huge Harley fan, right? This is years ago. And I have that moment like every Mark does, like, oh my God, am I going to say hi to Harley or is I going to shake his hand? And as he was going by on the scooter, he gave me this look that said, kid, stay away from me. <laughs> and I thought, I'm scared of a man on a little scooter. Like, what's I'm 6'3", 220 pounds. Yeah, yeah. He scared me on the scooter. Skandar yeah. Yeah, Akbar, who I, I broke in with, uh, did so much for me. I used to be him and uh, Killer Tim Brooks. 
but uh, he used to always say about Harley, Harley was the only guy tough enough to bump in the keel. And uh, Jerry, Jerry will tell you how hard that original ring was in the keel. I never, yeah. thank goodness, never had to wrestle in the keel in that yeah. old ring. It was, it was hard and hard and big, 22 foot wide, man. You hit, oh. you hit a crisscross on those, it, it'd take you five minutes. <laughs> it'd take you forever. Especially like guys like Dick Murdoch or some of them. But oh, you my just, goodness. You call a crisscross with Dickie there, and he'd screw you, kid. <laughs> it'd take two steps, turn around, and punch you in the head, you know. But, you know, the NWA, it had such a tremendous amount of influence. I mean, you know, Vince Sr., he 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 built his territories on on – ethnic guys, you know, big, strong muscle guys. But when NWA came along and they selected my brother and Dory Funk as, as their champion, Jack Jack was such a, a prototype athlete during his time that, you know, Vince Sr. started watching this guy because Jack was over everywhere that he went, just, you know, by his looks, his skill, his talent, and his personality. Well, that, that even influenced Vince Sr. where, you know, I, I got to have me a Jack Briscoe. So he, he consulted Eddie and Jim Barnett, and they, they, they led him to Bobby Backlund. So Vince, Vince uh, Sr. completely changed his MO of doing business because of the influence of the NWA. And that's wow, what you're, know you're, that. you're trying to get back is that same influence there. I, I didn't know that. That's amazing. One cool thing I should tell you since we're talking about your brother is, um, I've been because I, I love memorabilia. So I, I, I've been finding these fan photos that people would take in the 70s. And recently I bought maybe like 800 photos of, of the Florida territory. You're in some of the, you know, basically ringside photos, but you're in some of the photos. Are they the old Miami? Are they old Miami collection? It looks like that. Yeah. It's like probably 1972, 73 era. Um, there's pictures before your brother has the belt where Dory has the old NWA title belt. The, um, the um the the nature boy buddy rogers belt um that belt and then obviously they switched at some point to the what is the 10 pounds of gold with your brother so i've got shots of that but it's cool it's just fan photos but it, it's so cool to see you guys like the snapshot vibe you know it's not the perfect yeah. shot but it's cool because it puts you in the building yeah cool. speaking of uh, jack briscoe you own uh the paul bosch uh, library right not true um <laughs> So when I bought the NWA from uh, the guy who owned it previously, Bruce Thorpe, yes, sir, right. uh, he had arranged to uh, to exploit the uh, NWA Houston Library. So as part of the deal, he said you can only buy the NWA if you also basically take over the exploitation right of the library. But in order to make the deal, the Bosch family had to sign off on that. So I have the library. I haven't chosen, I, I have exploited it in certain ways, like I lend footage and get money and stuff like that to, um, to you know, like an HBO special, like they wanted footage of Andre the Giant, stuff like that. I resisted the urge to just kind of throw it on the market or do something cheap with it. I'm trying to find the right uh, situation for it because there's so much great stuff in there. Um, and in, even at one point I was in discussions with WWE to try to buy the library, but that just didn't work out because there was stuff with the family. So it's unfortunate at this point that that library is not better exploited to the general public because it's a great chapter of NW history, but I do not own the do, library. Do you have a general knowledge of what's in that, what's in that collection? Oh yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. There's some, uh, there's uh, some, you, uh, a, unique there's, thing, a unique thing happened. Uh, Jack and, and, uh, and Harley, they switched the title of course in Houston. That's one of the few matches of the modern time that there's no video of. And I know really? Paul Bosch and the Paul Bosch, whether he was told he couldn't film or not, and that's a rumor that Paul Bosch was told he couldn't. 
it was Paul Bosch's territory. Paul Bosch always had a handheld handicap, you know, those little cameras he used to go around. Yeah. I, I know that there's got to be in that collection somewhere because Paul well, the, wouldn't miss an opportunity like that. Well, but. certainly, I certainly would love to find that footage. I think um, my my best understanding is only 60% of the tapes were transferred before I took over the sale. And as you can imagine, there are a lot of those old two-inch right. Betacam yeah. reels. And so, the, you know, there's some, they have to be temperature controlled and... Right. It's a very complicated thing. And 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 honestly, I mean, I, I, I thought at some point the WWE would have just bought the library and sort of sorted it out. It got into kind of complicated legal issues with the family. And right. then WWE kind of stepped back and said, you guys work it out. And I've never been able to work it out with the family. So it's it's a complicated issue. And um, but yeah, I mean, for all I know, it's it's literally in the vault where I have it's, this stuff. Stored. Yeah, I just buried it in there somewhere. Be. But there, there was such a plethora of... of you know, huge, uh, we look upon legendary stars, you know, that pass through that territory. That library is just, it's got to be a gold mine. <laughs> then you have those, but then you have those weird matches of like Paul Bosch at like 65 against right. yeah. not Baron Leone, but there was a guy like a Baron something like, yeah. like <laughs> way, you watch it with a 2022 eye and you, and the fans are going berserk for Paul fighting Mr. Bosch fighting this, some yeah. some mid card guy. I don't know. I can't because I wasn't there, but it seems pretty weird to me. But well, um, so yeah, something would be too. a great value, and John and I both would both like a, like a copy of it. If you run across anything, Bronco Lubitsch doing a re referee where he's counting to three, tapping his foot. That was an old old Houston legend. Ah. That's what Paul, uh, he did like getting up and down, and some of the guys would do like fifteen high spots to make him get up and down. So he just started, okay, I'm gonna tap with my foot. <laughs> Bronco Lubitsch was a worker, right? He was a worker before yeah, he was. Bron Bron he was a worker, but after he got too old, they, uh, uh, Paul made him a referee. Paul and and uh, Fritz yeah. made Fritz. him a referee, so he went. Yeah, and, and Fritz, and, and Fritz, he he ended up working in Dallas at the end. Uh, yeah. You know, he was a he was a great wrestler, uh, yeah, a terrific great, yeah. wrestler, great terrific heat wrestler, wrestler. Yeah. <laughs> and then he got in the office with Fritz, and Fritz made him. He was a booker, and he was also a referee. And he's uh -huh. like, he, he and Bulldog Vanity Fletches were the same. Once the guy started doing too many false finishes, he would just count with his foot. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> guys, I'm old. I've been in a million matches. I'm not getting down. That's funny. <laughs> Until the finish. I got to look for that. Yeah. So yeah. That, that, those those would be classic matches just from the referee counting count with his foot. There. <laughs> That's right. So Billy, tell us a little bit. You, I know you got something coming up this this weekend. Uh, this will be this will drop Thursday. It's coming Thursday, but this coming weekend also you have something special coming up. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I I. I we're we're good friends with Tyrus, of course, and he. I mean, who isn't the you know, guy? Such a charismatic uh, person there. But tell us a little bit about your event, how how we can catch it, and all that. Sure. Well, we're on Fight for Pay Per Views, F I T E. You just you go to Fight. Um, main event is Tyrus with uh, Matt Cardona against Trevor Murdoch, who's the champ. And then the semi main is Camille, who's the champ, been a champ over a year against Chelsea Green, who's Matt, Card Matt Cardona's wife, tremendous uh, professional wrestler. And also Kylan King, who's really made her name for herself in the last couple of years. Big, big hard hitting, uh, you know, probably six feet tall, but hits hard and goes hard. I mean, I'm I just a big fan of her. So just those two kind of main events I'm, I'm very proud to present. We have other stuff like Colby Carino, who's obviously the son of Steve Carino, a former NWA world champion, against uh, Davey Richards, you know, still one of the best professional wrestlers in the world. Colby told me that um, he, he, became, he wanted to become a professional wrestler not because of his father but he saw davy richards uh in an roh show when he was 13 years old and so i put that match together with mlw 
uh, Davies uh, 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 champ there, national open weight championship. Um, we got a casket match between Max, who's you know five eleven, the non-binary nightmare against uh, this Russian Natalia Markova, who's I think one of the best pro female professional wrestlers in the world right now. Um, gosh, just so much. Um, I think we have eleven matches on the, just the main card, so it's a pretty pretty stacked card. And like I always tell everybody, if if you don't like what the NWA is doing, and if you don't like what the NWA is doing, you don't like wrestling. I, I just I can't. I get all the other stuff stuff, and I know I'm repeating myself, but we are we are just wrestling. We're straight up hard and tough, and uh, and I think people are really surprised by what we've been able to build in the last few years, and and it really goes back to what I've been saying. It's like there's something about the toughness which is that old school toughness, um, whether it's the hitting or the selling or whatever, whatever those combination of factors, that's the modern NWA and it's really starting to click. Great, you said uh, uh, modern toughness. I know we're talking about the, the NWA belt. You you own the, the original NWA go 10 pounds ago now, right? Or is it? No, sir. Well, there's, there's, there's a bit of confusion there. Um, you know, Harley had a belt, but I heard it was a recreation. It wasn't the belt that he actually won. Well, I can uh, I can tell you the original. It's got that dent and the uh, and the globe there and the and the dome. Well, Triple H owns the flare belt, as it's known. So he owns that one. So where the that, original is that, one? Is like, that the one with the dent in it, or do you know? Don't know. Um, we got, you don't know how that dent got there, right? Jack hit Harley over the head with the with the thing. Of dent I've heard that story, yes, sir. <laughs> so that I don't. I, if that's if that is basically in quotations, the one that that Flair held and is the one that Triple H has in his office. I've never seen it with my own eyes. Um, what we have is a, a sort of a modern version. Um, you know, um, I love I love belts, old belts. I actually have Mildred Burke's belt. I don't know if you know that story. No, wow. I don't tell tell us. I'd love to see that belt too. Maybe I can get a picture of it someday. Well, yeah, tell, tell us the story how you got that belt. Um, somebody somebody uh, I know owns the rights to the Mildred Burke story to to adapt to a movie. Somebody in the music business, and they said um, his grand uh, sorry Mildred Burke's granddaughter is selling a bunch of memorabilia, including the title belt. Is that something you'd be interested in? And so I reached out to the granddaughter, uh, who I actually just spoke to today, um, and a uh, lovely woman. Uh, and, and you know, she said when, when she was a kid, her grandmother never talked about wrestling at all. It was like, that part of my life is over. And Mildred Burke was a huge, huge star, crossover wow, yeah. star. They and star, was yeah. a main eventer in a time where in many cities, women weren't even allowed to wrestle. So it was a true legitimate star. So that belt that came out, I think, maybe out of Ohio in 1937 that became the, you know, the original women's belt and was recognized as the world belt, I think up until 55. And they did some kind of swerve on Mildred to get the belt off of her, even though she never lost. Um, so that belt was still in the family, had never been offered for sale. So I talked to this, uh, the granddaughter, really lovely woman. And she was, it was hard for her to part with the belt and we'd have subsequent conversations. And, and crazy enough, she, she was a fan of mine. And so getting to know her as a person, talking to her about her grandmother, um, you know, we talked about the money side, but ultimately for her, it was like, is this going to go to the right place kind of thing? And we had a conversation where I said, listen, I really do want to honor your grandmother on this. This is an important piece of history and it belongs as part of the NWA history. And, and she, she wrote me back and said, I, I really feel good about this. And so, yes, yeah, she sold me the belt privately, never put it on auction. Wow. which wow. is amazing because you know once it goes in auction i mean who knows who's going to buy it right. and so i have that belt and it's it's a pretty cool thing to look at because wow 
You think of the locker rooms that belt was in. You think of the arenas that belt was in. You think of who yeah. was around that belt. And of course, there's pictures of Mildred with Bella Lugosi. And uh, right. I mean, she you like know, she, you say, she was a crossover star. She was a Hollywood. She was a Hollywood star even at that time too. Yeah. So that's a cool. That's a cool belt to own. Yeah. Do you have any other great belts like that or? Uh, I have a few things, but nothing sort of worth pointing at, but I, I keep poking around, you know, you talk yeah. to one person, they got this and, uh, I, there's one legend that has a belt that I'm trying, I'm, I, I keep like, sure you don't want to sell that belt. I feel like my friend always makes the crow noise, like, rawr, rawr. you know, I feel like the vulture, like trying to get the belt off the guy. <laughs> what, what belt is that? If you don't mind Sam? you know, it's actually, it's actually from the same, uh, I think it was the like the junior heavyweight title, but from that same era, the Mildred Burke belt right. came out. Of. Yeah. But it would have been like a Billy Whipper Watson type of, you know, right. like when, yeah. when guys were over as junior heavyweights. And yeah, that um, that was a stepping stone at the time, a junior heavyweight uh, belt to go, yeah. go on all of the you know, Jack uh, Hodge, of course, and then uh, Vern Gagne. Dory Funk yeah. Jr., Dory Funk Jr., they were all junior heavyweight champions also. There, so. I just love the history. And yeah. and and if you allow me to cut a bit of a promo, because um, sometimes, you know, you question yourself, like, why am I buying all this old stuff? Yeah. And, 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 and and like I was talking about the pictures of seeing of you and your brother in those times, and it, 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 it motivates me, right? It motivates me because I think I want to bring this back. Again, not for sentimental reasons, but because I believe that is where it belongs. It's something about the ambience. And of course, you know what I'm talking about. That I, I got a great compliment from um, from David Crockett. Um, he came to see us. We, we do Crockett Cup uh, with their blessing. And and he was standing in the back and, 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 he, and he told me, he said, the sound I hear and, and the feeling of what you're doing wrestling wise, it, I, I feel like I'm back 84 in Charlotte like you're bringing back that feeling but I don't know what that is and I said I don't know what it is you tell me you were there but that's what I'm after yeah Great. that's incredible well Bill really thank you so much for joining us on the show I've been looking forward to this for a while I watched all your interviews today and it was just you're you're a terrific interviewer and when I and I saw you with uh uh, Pierce Morgan and Joe Rogan. Oh my goodness! I don't think Mr. Briscoe and I are smart enough to interview you. <laughs> oh no, no, sir. It's been a real pleasure to talk to both of you. And and uh, anytime, I'm always happy to come back if I'm if I'm if I'm good for that. Oh, you no, you're definitely good for it. And and good luck this weekend on your uh, show. Thank you so much.